few weeks ago that you didn't know was a series because I hadn't decided at that point, but I decided that would be part one. And uh, we said that in most homes we have rules. How many of you had rules in your home growing up? Okay. How many of you still have rules for the kids in your home? How many of you still have rules? You have even more rules now for the grandkids that come visit. Okay. Um, how many, where you work, you have rules, right? Everywhere you go. <laughs> I got to keep going. Where, everywhere you go, where you interact with people, there are rules of some kind. Some are written, most are not. We said that in the church, the simple principle that governs our interactions with others is that we are to treat each other in the church the way God has treated each of us in Christ. And so a couple weeks ago, we looked at some verses in Romans 15, and we found that, first of all, we are to accept one another. How many of you remember that a couple weeks ago? You were here, and you, it kind of registered with you. Okay. We said that the two most powerful forces on the human soul are acceptance and rejection. One we move toward, the other we move away from. But either way, acceptance and rejection shape us. And every word, every action, every nonverbal sends a message of acceptance or rejection. And our hearts are drawn toward environments that are characterized by acceptance. The church is to be a setting where people ought to be able to come and interact with people, and they may say, I don't believe what you believe, and I don't know the songs, and I can't find my way around the Bible, but I know this, that when I come into this place, or when I interact with these people, I just feel accepted. And that's a challenging thing, because we are naturally better rejectors than we are acceptors. It's that human part of us. And this is important, because an environment of acceptance is, op- is the optimal environment for change and for growth. And the thing about acceptance is that really is more than just what you think and what you feel. It's about what you say and what you do. Tonight, we're going to talk about another one another from the New Testament. We're going to talk about the New Testament mandate to encourage one another. Where Whenever you hear uh, in the news about a new development, let's say uh, in the the uh, war on cancer, okay, or a potential cure for a disease of some kind. If you're like me, you perk up because it's a big deal. And the reason for this is twofold, because of our knowledge of diseases and our susceptibility to these diseases, because we all live with the assumption that we're susceptible to disease in some way, shape, or form, right? You understand this, right? You've come to accept that that's how it works? Okay. And all of us, whether we admit it or not, in our heart of hearts, we fear that. So when we hear about a cure, or even a potential cure, it's like, all right, we want to to know more about that. The word encouragement, as it's used in the scripture, and we're going to see tonight, is actually presented and offered as a cure to a spiritual disease that everyone in this room is susceptible to. Not only is it presented as a cure, but it's presented as a safeguard against this spiritual disease that we're all susceptible to, and I'm just going to call it the disease of drifting. Everyone in this room, me included, are susceptible to this thing that all of us have probably experienced from time to time in our lives where we drift. And drifting kind of goes like this. I know the difference between right and wrong, but just in this situation, I'm going to do wrong because it's not a big deal. And after I've done wrong a couple times, I'm not sure... It's definitely not a big deal, and I'm not even sure I want to be around people who are doing right. And as time goes by, I'm not even sure that it's wrong anymore. 
Maybe you've been there and lived that dynamic. Drifting begins not when you wake up one morning and you decide, you know what, I think I'm going to jettison everything I believe and, and everything I believe in terms of right and wrong in my code of ethics, and I'm just going to throw all that out the window and live a different life. That isn't how drifting happens. I've never but met anybody who's had that experience, but I've talked to a lot of people and I've observed a lot of people whose story went sort of like this, that I made one small moral compromise. And then I made another small moral compromise. Or I had this thing that I hid from the people around me. Or I made a decision that I had convinced myself wasn't a big deal. Or there was a lapse in my integrity. Then I found I didn't like spending time with the people who had the values that I used to have. So I found a new group of friends, and I felt that these friends, they're a better match for me anyway. And over time, I began to question if it was even wrong to begin with. And I began to question then what I really believed about God and his word. And I, as time went by, I just decided I didn't believe any of that anymore. And I don't know if, you've, if that's been a part of your story or if you've seen that in the people that you know and love. The thing that all those stories have in common is that drifting doesn't begin with a decision to drift doesn't begin with a, a mental decision to change the way you believe. It typically begins with a change in behavior that eventually leads to a different way of thinking. We think it's the other way around. But it typically begins with a change in behavior that eventually leads to a new way of thinking. It's a, it's a disease that we've all either experienced or are in the process of or may face someday. We're all susceptible. Some of you... Uh, maybe you tell your story this way, that, you know, I haven't changed uh, what I believe, but I'll be honest, I, I, I believe one way, and I'm behaving another way. And kind of, in some ways, I'm kind of disgusted with the way that I behave. I can't believe I'm involved in this relationship. I can't believe I'm in, I have this much debt. I can't believe I hide this from my spouse. I can't believe that I'm involved in this practice in my workplace. I can't believe what I'm doing because I don't really believe in what I'm doing. You might say, when I hear about people who are doing the kinds of things that I'm doing, I'm disgusted with them, and yet I'm doing the same thing. So how did I get in this mess? How did I get here? It's pretty simple, actually. It's because you didn't change the way you believed. You made one simple moral compromise, followed by another simple moral compromise. And before you know it, you're kind of living in two worlds. Maybe you're here tonight, and you have that tension Maybe you came tonight, but you didn't really want to come because you've grown uncomfortable with church. The next step eventually is you just don't want to be around people who remind you of what you used to be. And over time, whatever it was that anchors us in our faith, we can find an excuse not to believe that anymore. It's the spiritual disease of drifting. It's how affairs get started. I've never heard of anyone saying, you know, let let me tell you, Pastor, how my affair got started. You know, I sat down one day and I began a debate whether or not I should be faithful to my spouse. And I talked with some people and I got some advice. I went to a couple counselors and they advised me. I interviewed some people who'd been down this path. I gathered all this information. And after lots of study, I just, made, on an intellectual level, I determined that an affair would be the best thing for me. And so I acted on it. That isn't how affairs start. It's something you do, then it's something you rationalize. Same way with men and women who get into 
issues with their integrity in their workplace. It wasn't, well, I researched this and I studied that. No, it was, there was a deal to do, there was a sale to make, there was a job to get, there was a promotion to get, and I wanted it so much and I went ahead and I did it. And then there was another one, so I did it again. And there's so much tension that I decided later that it's really not that big a deal. I made it to be a bigger deal than it was. It's not that big a deal. We do things and that changes the way that we think. What we're going to see from Scripture in a minute is that everybody in this room is susceptible to the disease of drifting. And the ultimate place that it takes us is to where not only are we sure that we, what we used to believe isn't true, we get to a place where we're not really sure what we believe at all. We get to a place where we're just kind of adrift morally. There's no reference point. We just kind of live our lives and do what we want to do, and there's no sense of moral direction anymore because we've drifted so far from the beginning, from the root, from the things that we used to believe. So if you have your Bible or your Bible app or whatever you're used to follow along, um, we're going to have it on the screen too. I'd like you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3 is near the very end of your Bible. The writer of the book of Hebrews tells us and he warns us about this spiritual disease. Let me just tell you a little bit about this book. Just kind of refresh your memory a little bit on the background of the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is written to uh, Jewish Christians. These are people who were brought up Jewish uh, with the law and the whole nine yards. And then they became Christians. They became followers of Jesus. And as time went on, some of them began to drift back into Judaism, which is one thing. But some of them eventually began to drift away from God altogether. And they're like, look, we've tried being a Jew. We've tried being a Christian. None of it works for us. And they began to drift. And one of the purposes behind this book was to instruct these people and to encourage them not to drift. And all through Hebrews, we find uh, verses that talk about this idea of drifting and falling away. And the passage we're going to look at uh, tonight, I think better than any other passage in the scripture, uh, takes us behind the scenes of this process of drifting and gives us what I believe is a solution. Uh, so we're in this series on the one, uh, some of the one another verses in the New Testament. We're not going to cover them all because there are like 58 of them. Uh, but we're going to cover a handful of them. And so uh, a couple weeks ago we talked about accepting one another. Tonight we're talking about encourage one another. And, uh, but I want to talk a little bit about this, this disease of drifting and then bring it back to the topic. So Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. So see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. This word that starts off, see to it, it's, a, it's probably a little bit weak in this translation. It, it really means watch out with an exclamation point. Be on the lookout. Watch for anything in you that would tip you off that you are about to drift. Look at the phrase it uses. That you would have a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away. In your Bible, it might say, if you have a different translation, it might say falls away, which is actually, uh, that's the literal translation. Look out for an unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. That's where we get the idea of drifting. He says, watch out that you don't slowly, incrementally, bit by bit, begin falling away from the living God. It goes on, verse 13. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. This phrase, hardened by sin's deceitfulness, because here is where we discover that Drifting doesn't begin with what we believe and what we think. It begins with what we do. Because the writer says, and he, he kind of personifies sin. He acts as if sin is a person. And he says, you've got to be careful that you aren't hardened by sin's deceitfulness. 
And that term hardened is found all through the scripture, New Testament and Old Testament. And it always refers to a person or to a process where someone hears the truth and ignores the truth. You ever been there? That ever been true of you? You ever found yourself in that situation? We all have. They hear the truth and they believe the truth, but they don't act on the truth. They hear the truth and they ignore the truth. It's something that some of us experience maybe every day of our lives. I don't know. It's like, I hear you. I believe it's true, but I'm not going to act on it. I know it's right. I know I should, but I'm going to do my thing. I know it's wrong, and I know I shouldn't, but I'm going to do it anyway. What's the big deal? The writer says that over time, as we ignore what we know is true, what we believe is clearly true, that as we ignore that, we begin to get hardened to sin. That is, it used to bother us a lot. It doesn't bother us so much anymore. It used to bother us, now it bothers us less and less and less, and over time, it just doesn't bother us at all. Uh, for those of you who went to college, I'm going to venture a guess that your freshman year of college was a major transition for you in just about every area of your life, yes? It was a transition morally, it's a transition ethically, it's a transition spiritually, um, and the reason for that is this. It's not because you went to college, because you're so smart, and you went to the library, and you researched Christianity, and is there a God, and is Jesus the Son of God, and all of the, is all of this true? Let's read about what the scholars say. Let's do a side-by-side -side comparison on the biggest whiteboard I can find, and you spend hours and hours in the library trying to determine whether or not you should adhere to your roots, your faith, what your parents taught you. You, pro I, you didn't do that. You went to a few parties. You had a really good time, and you thought, if mom ever knew what I was doing, it wouldn't be pretty. And then you felt guilty, and you're like, I shouldn't have, but then you did it again. And I shouldn't have, but then you did it again. And then you began to surround yourself with people who are like, it's not a big deal. Don't beat yourself up. It's no big deal. Like, Come on. And you begin to distance yourself from the people who said you shouldn't. And then because you're such an honest person, you're like, you know what? I just don't really believe it's wrong anymore. And not because of a bunch of research you did, not because of an academic intellectual exercise, but on the back end of behavioral change, you made a decision. You came up with an intellectual argument afterwards to support it, not what began as an intellectual quest, but what began as a change in your behavior. It begins, it always begins with behavior. So here's what I want you to hear. Um, when we're all done here, I don't, I don't want you to come forward and make a big public decision. We're not going to sing 12 verses of a hymn and have you kneel here at the front. I just, and some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. That's fine. I, I just want you to be honest with yourself, whatever your situation is. And say, yeah, yeah, it, it began with behavior. It didn't begin with an intellectual pursuit. It didn't begin with a search for what I really believe and why. It began with some changes in my behavior. That's the deceitfulness of sin. You know what the deceitfulness of sin is? In a, in, a, in a phrase, it's this. I can handle this. I mean, the people I, like, my father couldn't. My mother certainly, my, my brother can't. My coworkers can't. But I can handle this. I know it's not the best decision. It might even be wrong but I'm going to do it anyway because I can handle it. I'm going to put myself in this situation because I can handle it. Or maybe now I'm convinced it's wrong, but I'm going to keep doing it anyway because, you know, you have your life and I have mine. And everybody's got sin and stuff, so don't judge me. 
And I don't really like those church people anyway because they're a bunch of hypocrites. And I've got real friends now. I've got real friends who really understand me. And I don't even think I believe that anymore. So that's the deceitfulness of sin. You think you're in control. You think you're making, you're making logical decisions, but you're deceived. Sin doesn't often wake you up in the middle of the night and scream at you, there is no God. No, instead, you wake up in behaviors that have removed you from your spiritual roots. And then you begin to wonder, I don't know if I believe that. I don't know what role that has in my life. I don't know if this makes sense. I don't know if there's a God anyway. And if there is, how do I relate to him? I thought I knew. Now I don't know. Look at all the violence in the world. What kind of God is this? I've got so many questions. I think I'll just back out of this thing because I don't believe that anymore. You feel better about yourself and about your lifestyle choices, but you've been deceived. You might be think, sitting here thinking of other people right now, but every one of us is susceptible to drifting. The amazing thing is the way back, if you find yourself there, and the way to avoid it is very, very simple, and it's found in these three words in verse 13. Where the writer says, encourage one another. He says, encourage one another daily. Now, this may seem like a major oversimplification, but that's kind of my style, so I'm just going to lean into it. I mean, how, how could encourage one another undo all that I've just explained and redo, you know, all that's been undone? How could that be? It's because the word encourage here in verse 13 doesn't mean what we think of when we hear the word encourage. We think encourage is, go get him, tiger. Good job. Way to go, man. Pat on the back. Looking good. You're having a good hair day. It's not, that's not what this is talking about. The word encourage here means to urge. It means to exhort. It means to plead with. The best visual aid I could think of, and this is really weak, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for it because it's, it's tournament week, so I'll just lean into that. The best example I could think of is a, is a cheerleader's old-fashioned megaphone. I really wish I had one because it would have really woken some people up. Um, you know what a cheerleader does? Before you answer that, I'm going to answer it for you. They urge, all right? The most effective cheerleaders are not the ones sitting on the sidelines checking their phone going, you guys do good now. Good job. You do good. Or, you know, I hope you make a point. Good job, boys. That's A cheerleader puts 1,000% of his or her energy into saying, let's go team. You know, defense, you know, and they're not playing the game but they're giving instruction, they're giving encouragement, they're giving some motivation. I told you it wasn't a perfect example, but the Apostle Paul says, I want you to be a community of cheerleaders. I want you to be the community of people that are so involved in one another's game that you're constantly exhorting, encouraging, pleading, motivating, and on and on with the people in your life. Not a general hope you win kind of thing, hang in there, brother, it's going to all turn out great, but a specific thing because... I know what's going on in your game. I'm there to encourage you, to exhort you, to speak truth to you, to motivate you. And I, if I have to, I'm going to plead with you. That's what he's talking about. We're to be a community of that kind of encourager. So here's what he says. Encourage one another when? Daily. Not just on Sunday mornings or Sunday evenings whenever we happen to get together. Not just in whatever small group environment you're involved in, although that's important. He says daily. In other words, you are to be in daily relationships with other believers at such a level that people know what's going on in your life. 
They can cheer you on specifically. They can speak to specific things in your life like, like play by play, you know, illness by illness, uh, temptation by temptation, challenge by challenge. You know, they, they know whatever's going on in your life that, that someone would be there to exhort you, to plead with you, to motivate you, to encourage you. He says you're to be that kind of encourager. Encourage one another. You're to be so connected and related in such a way that there's always somebody behind you, there's always somebody beside you, there's always somebody in front of you to encourage you. And, oh, and at the same time, you're always beside someone, and you're behind someone, and you're out leading someone to encourage them. And he says, as simplistic as this may sound, this one principle, being locked in relationally at this level, has the potential to undo, redo, and prevent the disease of spiritual drifting. Here's a warning. This should scare us to death. Verse 14. We've come to share in Christ if we indeed, if we, yeah, if we, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. I'll read that again as I messed that up. We've come to share in Christ if we indeed hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. This word conviction um, is a little word that's very hard to translate into English and it's very hard to set into this context because uh, it's kind of an intangible word that points, it really points to the foundation of something. What the author's saying is this, that you are a partner. You are a companion with Christ as long as, man, when, when the scripture says things like as long as, you better lock in or pay attention. As long as you hold on to the foundation of what you believe. But when you drift so far that you lose sight of the foundation, that you lose sight of the root, you're adrift morally. You're adrift in terms of your integrity. You have no way to keep your bearings. You're kind of just on your own, doing your own thing, making up your own standards. Some of you know what that's like, because on the outside, everything's all right, but on the inside, you're just confused. You know that you don't have a root. You know you've strayed from the foundation. You haven't got that anymore, but you used to. And you didn't lose your, sound, your, your foundation because of some of a sound intellectual pursuit. You misbehaved and you fell into the deceitfulness of sin. Now, I don't think you're an idiot. You can write that down if you want. I, but I, I don't think this one simple sermon for a few minutes on, is going to clear up all the questions that we have about God and Jesus and all that. But all I want you to think about is if you have drifted, if you have drifted, how did you get there? And isn't it true that it began with behavior? It be if it began with behavior, couldn't it be then, knowing the nature of your Heavenly Father, that He would offer you a way back? Not to insult your intelligence, not to act as if your questions aren't important. It's okay to question things. It's okay to question everything. But where do you stand when you're asking the questions? Here's my challenge. Don't miss this. Because standing off to the side at a distance with God at arm's length while you're asking questions is so dangerous if you're wrong, you're going to go down relationally and morally and financially and in your heart and your soul and in your integrity and in your moral authority because you stood and you asked your questions from afar, disconnected. It's okay to question everything, but stand on your theological foundation. Stand on what has been proven to be true and what you hold on to. Stand where 
stand there to ask your questions. Uh, I think you can ask questions, all your questions about God. You can ask all your questions about the Bible. You can ask your questions about creation and things like the flood and Jonah, what was the deal with that, and Jesus, and holy moly, revelation, really? Somebody, please explain that to me. You can ask all these questions, but, but standing significantly connected to other believers and asking those questions is a far safer place than rebelling and changing your behavior and standing a, from afar and asking your questions. Here's the application. Hang with me because I don't want you to feel like it's been a waste of your time. Here's the, here's, here's the application. Every one of us needs to get connected to a network of encouragers. Like, I don't need anybody patting me on the back. That's not what I'm talking about if you've been paying attention. Sitting here and listening to sermons won't do it. Ordering CDs and listening to a podcast won't do it. Watching your favorite preacher on TV or online won't do it. Reading some books won't do it. Somebody's got to be monitoring your, monitoring your game. Someone's got to know your game plan and cheering you on, saying whatever needs to be said at certain critical points along the way. I'll tell you, I'm just going to tell you the way it works for me. I get together, usually on purpose, with one or two or three guys on a, you know, three guys on a pretty regular basis, and we talk about marriage, we talk about our kids, we talk about money, we talk about temptation, we talk about priorities, we talk about church and ministry, we talk about schedules and time commitments and difficult relationships and expectations, and sometimes we just drink coffee and we're just in each other's lives, but you know what's, what's great about that? is that when I begin to drift, when I begin to lose perspective, when I get stressed and I take it out on the people I love, when I give in to all the good things that I could be doing and my schedule's already too full, and when I give in to temptation, and I know there's at least one of these guys, and they, they've have, they have their finger on the pulse of my life, and they're going to be on the phone to me, they're going to send me a text, they're going to steer a conversation with me, it's not because they're members of some whatever inner circle. It's not because they're members of some spiritually elite group. If you only know, they're just seriously messed up themselves. It's because we're in, it's because we're in community with one another. Over the years, I've had different guys who I've connected with on different levels, and we get together on purpose. We've asked questions about spiritual disciplines like prayer and Bible reading and worship and solitude with God. I remember one of these guys I had in my life when my kids were growing up, and he'd ask me, He'd ask me, do you have time in your calendar for you and Alethea to go out to dinner by ourselves? And I'd try to think of an excuse, and then he would say, and we'll keep the kids. That, that's understanding how this works. And do you know why he'd ask me that? Because I asked him to. You know why? Because if someone doesn't ask me, if somebody's not on the sideline going, take your wife out for dinner, take your wife out, Hey, dude, slow down. Come over here. Time out. Go out to eat. Have a conversation. Have a real conversation with your, with your wife. And I know because if someone, until I really learned this, this, the value of this priority in my life, if someone wasn't reminding me, encouraging me, I'd just forget. I'd get too busy with the urgent things and forget the important things. And I came to understand that I can begin to drift in my relationships. And I learned a long time ago that I want to be surrounded. I want to be so locked in with a network of encouragers in my life that I want people to have, to take, kind of take a number, you know, to get in line to get me in shape, that there's so many people who have a voice in my life. There is no, because I t totally believe there's no greater protection, because here's what the writer of Hebrews says, the thing that will keep you uh, locked in 
and prevent drift in your life is this kind of biblical encouragement. I want to draw your attention to one more thing in this verse. He says, but encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you, and this is, again, so that, so that indicates purpose or the result of. In other words, he says, he goes so far as to say that if you are in a network of encouragers, the result of that is, the, the, the result of that, the purpose for that, is that you will not be hardened by sin's deceitfulness because somebody else is helping you monitor your life. I'll tell you why this has been a, a, such a soapbox for me for so many years. Because I've sen- seen some great men, some people that I admired, who knew far more than I ever would know about God, far more than I did about the Bible. I saw them drift off into unbelievable extremes. And here's why. Don't miss this. They had strong convictions, but they had no connections. Strong convictions. Well, I believe and I believe, and I'll tell you, I got 12 verses right here off the top of my head, but weak connections. They weren't connected with other believers in such a way that somebody could say, hey, where you been? I mean, like, you know, in your soul, where are you? What's happening? Hebrews says this, and it's, it's not what you believe that will keep you from drifting. It's are you connected in an environment, in a community of encouragers? Let me, let me just ask you this. Are you, think about your life, are you in a relationship with another believer or a group of believers in a setting where someone, someone, at least one person, feels free to ask you some hard questions? The flip side of that is, are you asking anybody hard questions? And before you, like, go where I think you're probably automatically going to go, family doesn't count here. That's a different dynamic altogether, another sermon. That's a different thing. But are you locked into a relationship, an environment, a mentoring thing, something? In other words, is anybody tracking you? Is anybody on the sidelines of your game? I'm asking you, who's watching the game and encouraging you as the play goes on? Is anybody doing that for you? If not, I'm telling you it's just a matter of time and you're going to be drifting. 1 Corinthians 12, a very well-known passage, the Apostle Paul talks about the body of Christ, the spiritual body. Uh, we're going to actually take a deeper look at this uh, at this passage in 1 Corinthians 12 next time I'm at the podium. But Paul says to think that I don't need the rest of the body in order to accomplish significant things, that, you know, that I don't need the rest of the body in order to accomplish eternal things, to think that somehow in my spiritual life I don't need the rest of the body to care for me, that somehow I can just get along, that's crazy talk. And in the same way, in terms of functioning successfully as a Christian, you can no more function successfully as a Christian on your own then a hand that's cut off from the body can function and fulfill its purpose. The question isn't what do you believe and do you have strong convictions? That's got a place, but my question tonight is are you connected? So let's get really, really practical. I want to give you some ways you can get connected uh, in a significant way in this church. Number one, if you know me, you've known me more than three months, you know what I'm going to say. Small group environments. I know I, saw, I mean, I'm a broken record on this. I've been pounding away on this for 25 years. In our 20 years at Faith Community, we've been all over the map as a church when it comes to our approach to small groups. For the most part, we've leaned into this model we call community groups, and there's small groups that meet a couple times a month. They, we kind of rally around a, a, a topic, um, study different things, but it's really more than what we study. It's about who we become in that group as we are kind of relating to one another. You need to be in a group like that. 
We don't have as many active groups as we've had in the past, but we're working on that. This spring, it's our intention to launch some more small group environments. Right now, we've got a couple of them, um, and I think they have open seats. So if this is like, yeah, it's time for me to get connected, come talk to me. In addition to these, we've got things like Kindred Spirits, our women's group that meets a couple times a month. We've got things like Men's Frat, our, our men meet a couple times a month. FCF parents, a group for parents and grandparents and children's ministry volunteers and anyone interested in gaining influence with our children, they meet once a month right now. On top of that, we've been offering some of these uh, short-term small group experiences like, um, like the Sticky Faith experience last summer where we talked about building lasting faith in our kids. Uh, things like the worship series by Hillsong that we did last fall and Starting Point that we did a few weeks ago and we're gonna be offering Starting Point again very soon right after Easter. Um, then there's a leadership initiative that, that we've started kind of below the radar a year ago where current and potential leaders are experiencing a small group kind of dynamic and getting to know each other at a different level. But my point is we're working at creating more small group environments. And I believe there should be at least as many seats in our small group environments as there is here on Sunday morning, if not more. So we've got a lot of work to do. Um, but just get ready because we're going to talk a lot about this over the next few weeks. Um, and then we're launching a new care initiative in a couple weeks, and you're going to want to be here on March the 4th as we talk about that with the whole church. And then in addition to that, we're just committed to, um, to launching more and more small group environments so that you can get connected. Let me just throw this out there. If you've ever struggled to get connected in a small group, to find the right leader, the right host, the right environment, the right night of the week, the night, right number of times, the right subject matter, whatever, maybe it's time for you to start a group. Oh, I'm like, I don't know, I flunked out of seminary. You're perfect for this then, okay? Like we always say, can you read a book at a fourth grade level and turn on a DVD player, all right? Then you can, we can make this happen. Maybe it's time, even better, to partner with someone to do a group together. Maybe it's time to open up your home and invite some of your friends. Oh, here's an idea. Invite some people you don't know yet. Invite some people who are nothing like you and see what happens. You come talk to me, I, I will... I'll take you to coffee to talk about that, okay? I've been, a small, I've been in a small group of some kind in my life for like 30 years, and you, you just got to get in community groups. In, 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 in a, and what I mean by that is not a brand. It's a group that focuses on community. <laughs> oh, I've got our Bible study group. That's great, but Bible study is important. But what I'm talking about tonight is connection. It's biblical community. It's the New Testament one another's. They're best lived, they're, it's ineffectively lived out in a Sunday morning setting or a Sunday evening setting. Um, the optimal environment for love one another, accept one another, serve one another, care for one another is in small groups. I think there's a reason Jesus had 12 disciples, not 120 or 1,200 that followed him around all the time. Um, and I think depending on what kind of background you come from, you might be sitting here thinking, you know, Todd, nice talk, I guess, but... Um, my spiritual life is really nobody else's business. Christianity and religion and my relationship with God, that's private. <clears throat> I don't feel like I've been real blunt tonight, so let me just get real blunt for a second. I'm just wrong about that. You couldn't be more wrong about that. Let me tell you why. It's amazing to me how we want to keep our spiritual life private. But over time our sin life becomes public. You notice that? Kind of a correlation. The more private your spiritual life, the more public your sin life. Your spiritual life is personal, but it is not private. 
that percolate. You texted it to someone across the room, didn't you? You know why it's not private? Because according to Paul's teaching, 1 Corinthians 12, where he compares the church to a physical body, that you're a hand, I'm a foot, someone's an ear, someone's an eye, we're a body. We're to think like a body. What we'll understand then is that our walk with God, there's an element of it that should be public, that should be known to somebody else. We need to let some people in. So they ask us the tough questions. So they keep us on track, encouraging one another daily so that we're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Think of it this way. Parents, wouldn't you love for your kids to get a hold of this principle? For your kids to surround themselves with people who can encourage them and keep them on track, wouldn't you love for that to happen? And if your answer is, think of your kids or think of your grandkids. If your answer is, I would love that, then model it for them. Prioritize your life for your children's sake, for your grandchildren's sake, around a network of encouragers. Isn't it true you want your kids and you want your grandkids connected with the right kinds of friends? Model it for them. And as you become an encourager, and as you receive encouragement from other people, then you turn it around. You be an encourager. You encourage people who are just getting started on their spiritual journey. Encourage people who are struggling. Encourage your own family members. Encourage your spouse, your teenagers, your young children. Encourage the people in your life who are nothing like you. Encourage that difficult person at work that you can't really stand or the person at church that you always sit on the opposite side of the room from or in your extended family at holidays and you're like, oh no, that person. Be an encourager. And as you allow God to connect you with other believers, who know the specifics of your life and who can stand on the sidelines and cheer you on, it'll protect you. It'll bring you back from the misery of a life that's been characterized by spiritual drifting. If you've ever been there, you know what it's like to be there. I just want to challenge you tonight to be a, let's just be a church that's known as a community of encouragers. Let's encourage one another. You with me? All right. Listen to this.
Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love, by 